Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contrary, and my guest this week is a big-time video game collector, even bigger than me. He's also a YouTuber. He is the immortal John Hancock. John, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. John, we don't speak as often as we should. Uh, you're someone that um, I actually uh, respect a lot in the collecting scene and looked up to for a couple of different reasons, which we'll get into. But uh, give me some background uh, just for the rest of the audience about when you started uh, collecting. Oh, geez. That goes back uh, way before video games. I started <laughs> as a kid going to flea marts with my mom. My mom, I give a lot of my collecting credit to my mom. My mom was a collector, collected Norman Rockwell plates and. She also collected Coca-Cola products, but we would go to the flea mart. We didn't have a lot of money, and I started collecting baseball cards, and I got pretty good at it. I would buy from other people there, and I was a little kid, and then I'd have my own table at a flea mart, and I would I would sell them <laughs> for a profit just to get more baseball cards. And, you know, I, like many people, moved on from cards in the 80s to comic books, late 80s, cards to comics comics to action figures but really really what it came down to was that i really got fascinated with video games and it was video games were being thrown out essentially everywhere you could find them pretty cheap in the early 90s and it really just kind of caught my attention because you could play what you were collecting i really was fascinated by that i was kind of tired of action figures just being in a package and i just i don't know it just was kind of boring and so i just kind of really fascinated by collecting what I could uh, play and it just stuck. And so really since the early nineties, uh, probably mid early to mid nineties was when I really started collect seriously collecting Nintendo, Nintendo, Atari, Genesis, etc. So you were collecting this stuff while it was still, you know, brand new. So you're talking about Genesis games uh, going after them when they were still in retail stores, when the system was still alive. Yes, yes. So, like, for example, uh, I was targeting $5 Sega CD games at Toys R Us. Ones they couldn't give because, away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, for a good example, Dark Wizard. Dark Wizard, an awesome Sega CD game, kind of often gets overlooked. And <laughs> Toys R Us was selling it in my area at $5. New. And I was excited uh, just that, you know, oh, if I – and I learned that if you wait, Instead of buying a lot of games new, you could get some good deals on clearance. And and really, I was just – I didn't know how many other people were doing this. I didn't know who else was doing it. I didn't really care. I just was kind of having fun doing it. And, and I, you know, for the collecting scene, uh, I was I was looking around and I saw a lot of older collectors really caring about Atari as, as I got connected to forums and stuff. And they didn't give a crap about Sega Genesis or Odyssey 2 or any of that stuff. Oh, they didn't like the Odyssey 2. They just wanted their 2600 games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good old early classic gaming expo uh, days. And and it was a lot of fun. And, and I just – I didn't get caught up in the value or anything. I just – I enjoyed doing it. I had a budget. You know, I <laughs> did some silly things to save money. And I was just a poor college kid that was just enjoying – playing video games and being a nerd. So that's when you really started collecting. You were in college. Yeah, I would say, you know, when I, I, I started, you know, I, I started working essentially when I was 16, but really by, by 18, when I was a freshman in college, I had a job, I had cheap rent. 
I had a car. And those are all great things to have if, you, if you're collecting. And so I would drive uh, on the days off when I wasn't working to flea marts and just kind of game hunt. Is that and a – This is kind of huh? – I'm sorry. I keep hearing you say flea marts. Is that a colloquialism to the northwest? I don't really yes. hear that expression too often. Yeah, flea marts. We, we had two flea marts. We had two uh, – we had an outdoor market in which uh, you could score some great, some great games for cheap. And it was called Epperson's. Uh, it was nicknamed the Dirt Farm. Um, it was dusty and dirty, and you know, you, there was typically one or two game game sellers there, and they all knew me by name. They're they're pretty nice. They always cut me deals. And then the Jolly Giant Flea Mart, which is the the one in Reading, it's still around, and uh, there's still a game guy there who knows me by name when I go there, and uh, I I just went there for years and just would go on the weekends and score some games and. You know, I'd probably bring like 20 or 40 bucks uh, on the weekends, and that was my big spending money. It's interesting that you you had a somewhat similar arc in terms of focusing on what to collect as I did. I I was big into baseball cards, as many people were in the 80s. I mean, I played Little League, uh, but also, you know, was reading some comics, buying them into the 90s. And then, yeah, action figures, I, you know, I was still kind of playing them, but also buying them as I got older towards high school. You, you really stopped playing with action figures, usually, which is unfortunate because they're fun to play with. But then, yeah, video games, late high school, early college. Uh, that's an interesting progression. So when you were growing up, what, what were the game systems you, pl- you played growing up as a child? Game systems growing up, uh, my first console, as I've stated on my channel, was a TV scoreboard by Radio Shack. So some people don't count the Pong as a as a as a true console, but yes, it's a console. It, was. it counts. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first one in my home. I played an Atari twenty six hundred at my cousin's house. Uh, I had three cousins that lived nearby, and they would kick my butt. I was the youngest. <laughs> they would kick my butt. I was actually second. Second youngest, but they'd kick my butt at combat. They'd all want to play me in combat because I would lose. <laughs> and they would just like – but it was a lot of fun. You know, the kids would go into the cousin's room and we'd play 2600, just the classics, Berserk, Combat. Um, I, I, those are the two that I remember. Uh, Space Invaders, a little bit of Asteroids. But Combat was big because we both could play at the same time. And so that was huge. Later, I do believe my parents rented first – uh, for twenty dollars on a weekend, uh, a Nintendo Entertainment System in '87 with a few games, Castlevania being the first Nintendo game I played, and I was scared playing it at night. I remember that, <laughs> and uh, just just good times. But yeah, eventually my parents I think bought a Nintendo. I don't recall exactly who was that was. It was probably my mom. My dad didn't really like video games, but he tolerated them. Because we, if we got good grades, it didn't really matter, and we we were good kids. I wasn't a troublemaker or anything, and and so I remember playing that in '87, a Nintendo. But my first console that I earned myself was a Sega Genesis, and I bought that near launch because I know back then there wasn't really a launch date. But I remember getting an Altered Beast Sega Genesis combo uh, for for about two hundred bucks. So that was back in '89. You you managed to snag back one back in '89. Very yes. nice. Uh, again, it's sort of it's a little bit similar to me. Um, when I was growing up, we had a Coleco Telstar Ranger. Um, nice. It took me. It was interesting because I I always forgot what it was, so I just started searching like you know standalone Pong clone consoles, and I said, "Oh, that's the one." 
when I saw it. It had the big magnum gun that could get you killed if you walked outside with it. Um, you oh know, yeah, they were they were some of those had some nice little pistols uh, that came with. It. And then yeah, my cousins. I also had three cousins. Uh, there were three brothers who had an Atari twenty six hundred, but they usually didn't let me play it. They claimed that like I broke one of the joysticks, and I was like, I was very young, so I probably wasn't that good at the games back then anyway. But yeah, and also in eighty seven. Um, I was surprised to hear that you you had a rental uh, in '87. Interested to, to see if it, if there was a rental case, if you remember. But um, in '87, Chris is when I got my NES. I think what I remember best is that it was a black case, and it looked like it was. And this is going off, you know, a, lo- a memory a long time ago. So I do remember that there was a like a cutout foam. You'd open it up. And it was instructions like don't lose anything, <laughs> and then there was be there'd be like a fifty dollar fee if anything was lost or damaged, and I remember it being just like a generic rental case, black with foam inside with all the controllers and stuff, and then you know the typical Nest rental clear cases, you know with the with the uh, photocopied manual. Okay. What, yep. So they probably fashioned. They probably. Uh, Got some sort of, I guess, a generic like a travel master or something, whatever at the time, and just cut yeah. it, cut it to fit. That's interesting. Yeah, because that's what I remember. Because there is a couple of hard NES cases. There's that red one, which is somewhat hard to find. And by the way, for people listening, uh, John's uh, having construction done in his house. If you hear any hammering in the background, he's having another. I apologize. Uh, in addition to the game, <laughs> addition to the game room being built on, probably. <laughs> but um, what, what I think is, was interesting about the early days of the NES is that it didn't seem like. Unlike, you know, big game system launches now, uh, back when it came out, it's not like everyone got it at the same time. It sort of slowly creeped into children's existence. You know, like when, when, did. when I when I first uh, started playing it, you know, I remember, I think, seeing it uh, sometime in 86. I remember going to like a PC Richards or, you know, regional electronics store in the Northeast and I remember seeing it set up uh, to play. But then it sort of like slips from your mind, and then you know w- once you hit like eighty-seven, you start seeing more commercials, um, you know, yes. and then all of a sudden it's in all the circulars, the Sunday, you know, edge. Like, okay, I want this for Christmas. And I think that's what happened with uh, a lot of kids I know is that like eighty-seven, and then you get to eighty-eight was like the first year or two that a lot of my, the kids I knew had it. Before that, yep, eighty-six, not really. Eighty-five, no one had it that I knew. You know, <laughs> like, correct. That's that's my experience. Eighty-seven, it was really. You could rent them, and then by by eighty eight, a lot of people started having them. And I was in a kind of a conservative area area, so a lot of families really liked Nintendo games because of you know they they're just they were just kind of wholesome, at least on the on the surface, you know. <laughs> and you know it just kind of it it just there was a lot of like church families in the area, and they all had Nintendo games. Ironically, they ironically the same families had pirated Commodore sixty four games as well, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Pick and choose your morals, right? That, um, that's right. Did you did you grow up with computers as well? Computer games, or yes, I did. Uh, you know, I didn't have my first computer in my home that I remember was the Atari ST five twenty. Ironically, I just picked up a ten forty Atari ST ten forty. But a lot of my friends had Commodore sixty four. That's really what I grew up with. And as time moved on, um, I had some friends with an Atari ST and an Amiga. But I don't remember. I kind of grew up before IBM PC took off. But in high school, I had 
I had an, a, a Packard Bell 486, uh, and that was a terrible computer, but I played a lot of my great classic computer games on it. Uh, the age of Packard Bell and Gateway 2000, right? Oh, yeah. Making, making Piece uh, of crap computer. But they're affordable. But <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. My mom could afford it, and uh, compact Rosario. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We had that terrible computer for a long time. I played a lot of games on it, and it served it served its purpose. But it was a pretty terrible computer. So I have to ask you. I, I don't think I ever asked you your your, your nickname, the, the Immortal. Was that given to you? Was that self chosen? How did that come about? Oh, that was given to me. Um, long story short. Drunken Master Paul, who appears on Metal Jesus Rock's channel, he and Jason, um, so he visited my my game room for the first time, and that, he essentially gave me that nickname. And so that's what he always called me after that. And so when I decided, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing with YouTube for a while, and then when I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to start making videos because I, I don't like talking to myself and I might as well talk to other people and decided to use that nickname for my, for my channel. And uh, that's what always, whenever I appeared on metal Jesus rocks channel, that's what he called me. So that's, that's how it was given to me. So in terms of your YouTube career, how did you first decide, okay, I'm going to take the plunge and talk about old dusty video games that no one really cares about. Like how did that happen? Well, it evolved from my terrible DVDs that I used to do. I, you know, I had this idea where I was going to archive. I really wanted to kind of showcase working consoles. I was worried that, and this is so funny looking back at it, like I wanted to showcase my collection and inventory what I have and show classic consoles working. And I knew that there was other people that had stuff, but not many people were recording it. So I was just taking a, a standard camcorder and recording things working hoping even though the video quality was terrible it still would educate people on what was out there and what you needed to know about classic consoles and so i did this for scratch money at expos thinking someone might care you know someone out there might (laughs) might care and i was so nervous so um, I, I first started selling these at a at a mid two thousands classic gaming expo when I did a road trip with other people from the Portland Retro Gaming Expo board. And my first sale, I'll never forget this. I was so nervous. My first sale was someone I really looked up to, Leonard Herman. So he came up and he saw these interesting DVDs. I was so nervous <laughs> because I had no idea if I was going to sell any. I ended up selling out and. Uh, did this for years. Just made these these simple how to videos of how to collect stuff. I was gonna say. I you, get, I remember, you gave me you you graciously gave me a couple of your collecting guide DVDs about five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was it wasn't the best. I mean, I'm I'm not a real high tech person, and so I I I kind of dabbled with it, but I just I always wanted it to be better. And I and, I, and to this day, I'm kind of a low tech person, but I thought. Okay, people are doing this YouTube thing. I have this crazy collection. It would be stupid for me not to do videos because there's stuff in my collection that's pretty odd. And uh, I enjoy doing it. You know, it's it's something that, you know, it's a side job. And I, I used to be teaching at college and had to give that up because of my current job as an elementary school teacher is pretty taxing. And essentially the YouTube, the YouTube thing has taken place of my secondary job. And so it's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying doing it, doing three videos a week. And uh, 
talking about strange oddball stuff and just kind of going all over the place, going classic computer stuff to clone hardware to, you know, an occasional earthbound prototype that gets found locally. <laughs> sure. I was going to get to that later. So you saw – you were attracted to really the educational aspect of sharing the knowledge of your collection with people who, who may – be searching randomly on YouTube, want to learn about, like you said, like oddball items or something that might be yes. unique or rare. Yeah, I'm really drawn to the oddball stuff. I kind of consider myself an, an oddball collector, and 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 I'm really drawn to one thing that kind of I I try not to do a lot. It's it's hard not to do some of it because it gets views. Is the mainstream stuff like Nintendo Switch and. SNES Classic Mini, uh, you know, stuff like that. But I really want to delve into the oddball stuff. Um, I have some some crazy odd stuff planned for the summer that I want to do on my channel. And and really, that's the stuff I get excited about because, A, not many peop- other people have it. And and even less people want to record and talk about it. Sure. Uh, uh, that's pretty much how I evolved in terms of, you know, it's like I have a, what, technically, well, technically only one complete. One or uh, two complete sets, and I have a third uh, that's almost complete. The NES, but I'm not like uh, you have so many completed. What did you say? Told me before we started recording, 26 uh, complete. 26. North, 26 complete North American sets, which is wow. That's a journey that I probably cannot begin to undertake to get close to that, even if I wanted to. But I and plus the room to store all that. That's another issue. Storage no, space. It's crazy. But um, that's crazy. Uh, there's there's items that I look out for that are very unique that not even a lot of hardcore collectors know about that I try to keep up on that I look out for and that's really what drives me in order to find this stuff and then also to tell people about there's one item in particular I have to get repaired um, that's a very unique NES item once it's repaired I, I probably will do a video on it and it would be like probably the first of its kind on YouTube you know so awesome. so there's stuff like that and you're probably the same way you're like okay I want to find this stuff out which really br- uh, brings up the issue of like when does a collector become a preservationist and is there a unique distinction there or is there a lot of overlap there? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Like did you, did you start off a collector with a little bit of preservation uh, side and then you find yourself maybe becoming more and more of a preservation guy? That's a great question, Pat. I, I honestly think that when I started collecting, I didn't know who else was doing this or if anybody else cared. And I think for me initially it was – okay, this is a hobby that I can get into on a poor college student budget. This is neat. I wasn't thinking about value or anything. It was just fun. It was, you know, I killed time. I went to the, I went to an outdoor market and I was able to spend some money and buy some games. And I really got interested in the educational aspect. I think as time evolved, I was shown a lot of oddball systems. Uh, I never forget. Uh, there was a a video game journalist at the time, he's kind of, I think, left the scene, but it was Zach Meston back in the day. He did a lot of work in designs. Um, he worked at work in designs and some strategy guides, and uh, he was known as a game journalist. He really actually kind of brought me into the circle of oddball stuff. He showed me the Bally Astrocade. He showed me a lot of the oddball consoles that I got really kind of fascinated with. And once, once I read the book, uh, Phoenix Rise and Fall video games, which I'm sure you you know about this awesome book. It's in its fourth edition now, and uh, it's I, I just got fascinated with the history, and that was probably in 2000. Probably by 2000, I was really kind of fascinated with the educational aspect of it, 
and and it the sky was a limit. Like I just wanted to know about oddball stuff, and I you know I was just curious what what else is out there. How weird can it get? And it got pretty weird. <laughs> it got pretty weird. I I met some other oddball collectors, and I had a lot of fun. And I think one thing that kind of drove me to collect the oddball stuff is that. On the fringe of collecting, it, it becomes more hobbyist, and it's less about the value. It's less about kind of like how rare and expensive something is. It's just about, oh, my gosh, there's someone else out there that gives a crap about a console. Oh, absolutely. And and I kind of enjoy that aspect of it, and, and that's kind of where I kind of call home is that when I can – delve into an odd an oddity and and someone else is just excited about someone remembering a console um the bally astrocade is probably my favorite oddball console and there's a great users users group and that they talk about it every now and then and and uh, now there's even reproduction carts being made uh with boxes on the uh, 2600 connection which i'm i'm pretty excited about (laughs) not familiar with that the 2600 connection we're talking yeah so yeah, Atari, it's a it's a website that sells homebrews and oddities, mostly for 2600 and Magnavox Odyssey 2. The the cool thing about the site is that they're cheap. I mean, you can get a you can get a homebrew for like $25 plus shipping. Okay. And that's that to me is like at a hobbyist level where it's not it's not, you know, crazy expensive. And, you know, it's just fun. It's, you know, that, that to me is like you get a cool collectible, but it's not like going to break the bank. It's one thing I get kind of, it's, it's tiring kind of sometimes. You see these awesome projects and then you see that they're just, they're expensive. So it limits how many I can personally get. Yeah, I, uh, I tend not to follow the homebrew stuff as much just because there's so much out there. And it's really hard to keep track. I know there's some people that like want to get every NES homebrew. And it's not for me. There's a couple that I have. Um, I was just sent from the creator of the Super Russian Roulette cartridge since we covered it on the podcast. He was gracious, gracious enough to send Ian and I both a copy of that. And that's a cool, unique one. So that's one I was definitely cool. on the lookout for. But uh, let's get back to, I guess, the mind of a collector in terms of oddball. Uh, isn't there a little bit of oddball to, I'd say, the purest collector? Because why else would someone want to, you know get whether it's like you said like norman rockwell plates or you know any nes games or 2600 games there's i guess a certain thought process that we have versus the average person where it's like okay we want to go out and look for this stuff we want to try to appreciate it where 99 percent of people will be like yeah hey, it's cool but real who really cares it's not worth my time it, it does take an odd person to to pursue i think any collection and it takes dedication it takes Commitment, long term, you know, for most people, especially back in the day, I know that you're you're in this boat where it was not all bought off eBay. It was a lot of game hunting, a lot of researching, a lot of contacting people, and and uh, it, it it's kind of a journey. And and for me, I never would have imagined having even one complete set when I started this. I didn't even know what what all was out there. Of course. Me, like several other nest nest collectors out there, uh, Mike Kettler's Nest Rarity Guide Absolutely. was what I used what I used for my for my for my initial list. I think I and think we so, all did. Yeah, and so you know, with other people, I remember this is so funny. I remember I was so excited. My first complete U.S. collection was Magnavox Odyssey Two, and I remember going up to Joe Santulli at one of the early Classic Gaming Expos, so excited that. 
I found at his show, like the final game. I think it was volleyball or something stupid in box, and I was so excited. And, you know, I he was he was gracious enough. He just saw me as kind of like probably just a little kid that was excited about you know completing something. So, but it, yeah, definitely agree. Definitely agree that you know collectors in general. You have to be a little odd to, to pursue stuff, especially now where it, you know, some of these, some of these, the values of these things has gotten crazy. Oh, sure, we'll get into that whether we we see a peak or not in terms of some of the the market value on this stuff. And we say that the day of recording, where a sealed stadium event just closed at forty two thousand dollars on eBay, it's crazy. We'll, we'll see if it gets paid for. It's a whole other discussion. Uh, but uh, speaking of that, I, I actually stumbled randomly across a Mike Etler auction. He says he sells on eBay. I saw. <laughs> I said. I said, "Oh, that's Mike Etler. That's his name." I was like, "Oh, that's the guy. That's the guy that uh, helped really helped jumpstart NES collecting in the '90s." Besides the whole, Absolutely. besides you know, finding. Thank God he found all those Cheetah Men two carts. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so yeah, Mike Etler is definitely a legend. Love to meet the guy someday. I, I think it's always interesting though when you talk about. Uh, the collector from, let's say, the 90s versus today, there is a certain mindset I think that's definitely different. And Absolutely. I, I really think, not not that you can't be a true, quote-unquote, true collector and and um, not discuss price, but I think it's the, sort of the order of interest uh, is what's really important to me. Like, when I have someone come up to me and just talk about the value of their games first and foremost, or want to ask me, you know, how much is this game worth? I found it. And it's just like... Yeah, that's cool to know the value of that or really to delve into, you know, what are these games that hold their value. But to me, that's not the most interesting part of the story when it comes to collecting. That's a small piece of that entire pie, uh, whether it's learning about the system or learning about the specific publisher, the error the game came out, or actually, God forbid, the game itself and how the game is. Um, I- so true. You're so correct with that. You hit it. You just bring up such a valid point. It just drives me nuts. It drives <laughs> me nuts when you come when someone comes up to you, and you know I, just being in the, you know with a psychology background and and previous jobs, I can I can tell pretty quickly where someone's going with something. Mm-hmm. You know if they have an edge, if it's all about just the value of it, and it drives me nuts when someone comes up and that's all they really care about is what to invest in. And is this a good deal? And if I if I can tell that they don't care about anything else, I'll just not even answer them. <laughs> oh, really? You'll just say, like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, just like, well, you may want to just use completed eBay auctions to find your value. Sure. Or use I'm, Google. Yeah, that, that's what I, I, I do sometimes when I see emails where it's like, hey, Pat, I found this. What's it worth? And it's like, uh, you can search for that yourself. What am I going to tell yeah. you? That's any different than what's online. So how do you see that? Um, I mean, you've been around before. I guess the difference is in the 90s, no one really cared about the value of these games because they had no value. Um, and then w- once you hit around the mid-2000s, 2006 is always the my sort of starting yep. point where games started really start to increase in price a, a little bit. Yep. And then again in 2011 and probably again 2014 or so. You had like three jumps. Um how do you feel about that? You feel just a natural progression of once more and more people get interested in these games. Of course, it's going to bring more people into it. You're going to have people that want to capitalize on the value and, and quote unquote yep. invest. Is it just sort of the well? It is what it is. It happened with baseball cards. It happened with comic books. You know, it almost destroyed the comic book industry in the '90s. It, it basically yep. destroyed the, the the sports card industry. I don't think they ever recovered from that fully. Um, from like the '90s, uh, so so like, where do you what do you tell someone who's looking to get into collecting for quote unquote the right reasons about how investing has you know sort of affected the scene? 
Well, I think that the big issues are so many collectors out there and I see their collection and it's all like the high end stuff. And they're really, they really worried about the market crashing. They, you know, and it's, it's just, it just, that type of collector honestly makes me sick. And I just, I, I hate saying that, but I'm being honest. <laughs> you know, just, it just, it, it, it kind of, it, it does that, that type of, that type of person uh, that gets into the market will also be the reason if there is a correction, which I do believe there will be. I don't know if there'll be a crash, but there'll be a correction. When values of things start to stabilize or go to a certain level, I don't know. Uh, that's that's when I, th- I I think there's a lot of people right now that are selling or, or wanting to sell or curious about this being an investment versus people that actually care about what's actually on the physical cart of a game. That's not to say there isn't there can't be some overlap. Again, I, there I, is I, some major overlap, yeah. and there's some great collectors out there. It's just I think the market's pretty imbalanced right now, and I think that I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I don't know if I don't think there'll be a crash, but I definitely see a correction coming. I, I think it's going to be. I wanted to ask you this because I wasn't around for this because I started collecting more of the late '90s NES. But I always hear the parallels of you know the correction, the huge correction that happened with Atari, Atari collectors and Atari games. Uh, because in the 90s, 90s were, were basically where NES collectors are now. Guys basically hitting their late 20s to maybe early 40s, that like 12-year period where they wanted to go back and buy these old games. So, of course, in the 90s then, uh, that's really the first wave, I'd say, of video game collectors going back and getting those 2600 games from like 12, 14, 15 years before, right? So. Yep. So when you were when you saw it back then, did you was it kind of similar to how NES collecting is now? Do you see any parallels to that? What was it like? I do. So my experience was nobody gave a crap about anything. About Nintendo was still pretty popular back then, but nothing like it is now. I mean, I was the little kid when I when I moved up to Washington in two thousand five. I was I was a baby, but. Minus 10, so going back to 1995, nobody cared about Sega Genesis. Nobody did. It was Nintendo, some Nintendo, but mostly the big collectors were Atari. And those were the people that had the money. Those were the people that had the disposable income. That's what they grew up with. So all that stuff was, um, was you know, being collected for. But I, I just... Yeah, I see there's tons of parallels. I think Nintendo's, like, not high-end Nintendo. I think that Holy Grail stuff will always keep its value. But, like, the mid to lower range stuff I see is dropping. And because, part of that is because it's gotten so expensive, less people are pursuing it. Well, isn't it also that everyone who wants the cards have them? Are, are we getting to that same point where one of the one of the arguments, I don't know if you saw from Renee from Storage Wars go after me because I was criticizing his price evaluation of that storage unit. But when he says, you know, oh, those are, those 300 Atari games are worth $3,000, those are $10 each. Not an average $10 each. When I was trying to point out, anyone who wants a, a Centipede Atari 2600 game has had it for 15 years at least. You know, any, anyone who has a con that has had it for 20 years, there's not many new people looking for those 2600 games. I, I agree, and I think there's some other factors too. I think the, the rise in multi-carts, and people being satisfied satisfied with like a Raspberry Pi just to play stuff, the the value difference now is affecting. I think how many people are going to get into the scene. You also have the rise of pirated consoles that you can get from not so honest websites. 
that sell all sorts of crazy stuff that's a, a, a reproduction. And for a lot of people, a reproduction is fine. And so I think there's a lot of things that are, that are going to affect value in the long run on top of an entire generation growing up that's not going to even know what a physical media anything is. It's, so if it, do you see that? I'm sorry to cut you off. But I was going to get to that. But did you see that happening now in terms of like the Atari 2600 collectors were never replaced? You had, you had the, genera- the first generation that had them. Once they were gone, value plummets. Maybe, I don't know, in the 90s or early 2000s if a centipede cart was like a $7 game and now it's a dollar. You know, like, I don't know if that's how it was, but do you see that happening now with Nintendo where, yeah, you have some younger kids getting into it and replacing some of us in their 30s and 40s, but do you see it really taking a nosedive after that where there's not going to be any more new collectors get into it? I think there's several factors. I think this is, again, a great point. I think that there'll be always some people out there that want to jump in, but I think there'll be more people that have stuff that will be trying to sell. And the bigger that imbalance gets, that's when you're going to see value go down. Because there's a lot of people waiting on the sideline right now, waiting for the right time to sell. When they start seeing a nosedive in prices, that's when you're going to see, I think, a lot of people try to unload. Because they, they're waiting. They're, they're waiting for the right time to sell when the market peaks. And who knows when that time is? I think there's a lot of factors. But I agree with you saying... I think there's less people replacing the people that already have it, and I see that with Nintendo. I think people are moving on to PlayStation, PS2. That's kind of the next generation of people collecting. That's We haven't seen the top of that market hit, and we're just now starting to see prices rise, um, and I think it's going to continue. And I think the PlayStation collecting market may be just as big as Nintendo and for multiple factors, with one of them being that discs get scratched and there'll be less complete working copies of things on the market. So you see that maybe for the PlayStation collectors, maybe that'd be a little bit more about the game playing experience versus a classic NES collector? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it, with any collectors, I think it matters that the game works, whether they play it or not. Uh, if a game doesn't work, uh, I think even collectors that don't play their games, they want a working copy of it. Sure, and 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 so I think that that's gonna that's gonna matter with PlayStation as well, um, and it's gonna be harder because there's less working copies that are not all jacked up. Um, the nice thing about collecting carts, which is what I'm always loved about it, is that I could drop kick a cart. I never would, but I could drop <laughs> kick. I could drop kick a cart, and it would still would work, and it would work. You know, I I could slide an Atari twenty six hundred cart across the ground i could step on it it still will work bury in a landfill it'll still work which yeah that's true um you bring up a couple of good points first i would think that just because nintendo is you know sort of the you know the leader of the pack in terms of being recognizable for video games and its mascots i think that will always be the primary collecting market uh i think there will be a playstation uh you bring you bring up a good point john about the nature of playing PlayStation versus a cartridge-based system, it's a hell of a lot harder to emulate disc-based consoles versus cartridge-based, isn't it? So, like, I could yes. I could download the entire NES library in one file in roughly eight seconds, and I could download that file, maybe less than that. Can't do that for the PlayStation library. Can't do that for the PS2 library. Can't do that for the Xbox library. It's a little more cumbersome to download all those ISOs for all those games. So that's a, that's a great point. It might be a quote-unquote more pure collector base for the disc-based systems. It just might be. 
Um, and plus, who's gonna? Who really wants all those PS2 games? You know, who's is gonna be? Is gonna be that many uh, completionist collectors for a PS2 library besides yourself, John? But for most, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not there yet. But I agree right. that it's it's. I think it's gonna be. I think with PlayStation especially, it's gonna be subset collecting. Everybody's gonna. There's gonna be a lot of people going after the RPGs. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be people pursuing the long box. And there might be a couple weirdos out there that actually care about the greatest hits collection. So <laughs> the variants, right? There's yeah, the like variants, the the black label. I mean, there's just it's too big, I think, to collect in its entirety. But there's a lot of great subsets. Oh, sure, and and, and great games out there. But I think that yeah, I think generationally, the the, the thing moving forward is that the Nintendo is not the center of the universe anymore with video games. You know, back in the back in the late '80s early 90s nintendo i mean correct me if i'm wrong 90 percent of the market they dominated they dominated the video game market they just were cleaning house they you know they hit knocked it out of the park with the nintendo out came the game boy and then the super nintendo and i just like they couldn't do anything wrong and at least until the n64 but I mean, <laughs> even though i love the n64 that's really where they i think they lost some people mistakes were and, made Mistakes yes. were definitely made. You, I mean, if they played their card cards right, there would never have been a PlayStation, and then um, yep. someone, Sony wouldn't be the juggernaut they are. Well, at least they're not an overall juggernaut in terms of where they were twenty years ago. But at least in the video game world, they wouldn't be the juggernaut they they are now. If and I think that yeah, and I, I agree with that, Pat. And I think that I think that as time goes on, the the success or failure of the Switch long term and Nintendo's relevance in the market is going to affect its collectability. Sure. Um, I, I think, though, that what we're seeing with Nintendo having theme parks, uh, yeah. the Switch is so far doing as best as it possibly could be doing. Yes. Um, I think I think they're in great shape. Uh, you know, they have the most recognizable and marketable Disney type of first party characters out there. They are the McDonald's of video games, definitely. Yes, that's. I think that's the prime difference. When people uh, look back, like you said, when they when they when people go back and try to collect uh, PlayStation One games, like you said, I think they'll be mostly, like you said, subset collectors. People that want all the working designs games or all the weird RPGs or yes. you know the the, the one off uh, you know I don't know some of the sh- the light gun games that are on the PlayStation that were interesting. Uh, me personally, it's funny you said that because. I, I guess without knowing it, I started picking up whenever I saw them. I just started picking up the you know the first what six months or so when I did the long box, those crappy you know paper oh, yeah. cardboard ones, and they went to the, the the harder cases for a bit. I have I have a chunk of those. I probably have like more than sixty seventy percent of those releases just for, just picking up when I see them at the flea markets the past like eight nine years. Um, yep. And I think that's what you're going to get. You're going to be hard pressed to find that 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 set of people that are going to go out. I think and buy all the PlayStation One games. Yeah, and I think they're going to be harder to find too because. One cool thing about Nintendo, and I think what makes Nintendo really kind of like the nice, happy medium to collect something is that it's cartridge-based, they're pretty durable, they're fun game. The, the ROMs on the actual cartridges have enough substance there. It's, you know, sprite-based games, I think, age better than polygon-based games. Sure. So, you know, I... I, I popped in a Saturn game yesterday and it just looked fugly. It was just <laughs> it was just terrible looking and I'm just like, you know, people don't say that about Nintendo stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and and that brings back to why newer generations don't play Atari stuff because there's kind of like a 
a line in the sand where it's like, okay, it can look simple, but it can't look that simple to where people start complaining about the graphics. It, it can't. It is, there's, I always say to people, the reason why the NES is sort of the go-to, uh, one of the reasons why the go-to sort of, we remember this as the, the retro game console, is that that's really the first console. It's like, okay, we now have recognizable and, rec- and marketable you know, video game characters. When I yep. see when I see Super Mario Brothers, uh, you know, running across the screen, that's a huge step above Pitfall Harry on the twenty six hundred. That's like, yes. you know I mean? yes. that's like an entire generational jump ahead. That I think that okay, now when kids see that, like kids that are four year old four year olds nowadays versus thirty years ago, they're going to have the same experience. Versus, I think a four year old give a four year old Pitfall Harry nowadays to look at, and they'll be like, ooh, okay. I, I just see a stick figure. It's not as interesting to me. I can draw up my crayons, something that looks better than an Atari 2600 game. I think that's the difference, I think, to me. When I yeah, look and, at and, that. It's, it's, and it's nowhere marketed. I mean, it's just Atari. Atari never did a great job marketing their characters. I mean, they were really, I mean, even with the 2600, they didn't know how to market it until Space Invaders came. And then, then it kind of hit its sweet spot with the arcades, Ryzen arcades, but... But nobody has topped Nintendo with video game characters. Even I'd even say even Sony and 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 Microsoft struggle at really marketing and defining their video game con- characters compared to Nintendo. That's really why Nintendo is still around is because they have great video game characters and they do a phenomenal job marketing that. Well. I think that's what Atari's, one of their, I guess they didn't see it at the time. They never said, hey, let's invest in our own IPs. You know, because when people look back at it, 2600 or Atari, they uh, erroneously reference stuff like even Pitfall, which was Activision, or Pac-Man, which was not Atari. It's Namco. Or Cuber. Or Cuber, which is Gottlieb. Yeah. Poor old Gottlieb, quickly forgotten. You know, so <laughs> I, I, Atari has Warlords, they have Centipede, they have Asteroids, um, and then you're already running out of steam, right? There's not, yeah. there's not a huge amount more, and those don't have like cute, recognizable characters. You know, you have the, you have the centipede little spaceship or gnome, whatever box art you're looking at, right? Asteroids, yeah. what the hell is that? A triangle? Like that's, you yeah. know, like they never, they never thought of. Okay, let's come up with our own Pac-Man. Let's go for this. It was almost like uh, at the time they were just happy to make the games just to make them and didn't realize that, okay, we need some – maybe we don't have the technology to make like a Mario and Super Mario Brothers. You know, we can't do that on, on a console. They just didn't understand the home market. I think they really were innovative making classic arcade games and they really kind of benefited from owning all the rights and porting a lot of those classic arcade games to home. Missile that Command. was really – yeah. yeah. And Defender and, and, and a lot of those. And what's really funny is that when really the home market took off is when Nintendo was able to really kind of show gamers and, and, and people, hey, you know what? We don't have to rely on the arcades to make a great gaming experience. In fact, we're going to offer something totally unique that's going to expand upon, you know, a gaming experience, but we're going to make it totally unique. And that's and then and then make it child friendly and it's like knock it out of the park. I mean, well, that's amazing to me, right? I mean, you can make the argument with and ColecoVision was sort of lost a little bit because the crash happened not too far after that was released in '82, right? But and for a an, terrible controller, yes, uh, not as bad <laughs> as in television, but all right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. for the for the NES though, you had the arcade machines literally being you know for the first time 
uh, home console, the arcade machine was the same in the VS, the same as the home console. Yes. You know, like that, that was it. They got to that point. Okay. Now we're here, you know, the, on the, on the 2600, no, the arcade version was not on there. The, the most infamous being, you know, Pac-Man was not yes. even close. Miss Pac-Man, you got closer. Even the 5200 wasn't the arcade experience. You got closer, wasn't the arcade. Uh, 7800 was like, yeah, we got there five years too late, right? <laughs> like, it, it was done by then. Um, but for Nintendo, I mean, they can go and have their Play Choice 10 machines and be like, oh, we can advertise our home console games in the arcade. We can do a reversal. Yep. You know, we can get people interested in the home console and just put those games in the arcade at the same time to show them off. Like, it was a different time. I want to get back to, though, in terms of the parallels in NES and Atari 2600 collecting, because I want to speak to uh, my my experiences that I'd say the past year and a half, two years, going to uh, video game conventions, which I go to about eight a year, it seems like. Last year, I probably did about 12, since I was helping promote a certain NES guidebook. So I, I beat myself to death. But... What I see, maybe you can comment on it after I, I make my point, is that we are getting to that state now where I think a lot of these rare games, the top quote-unquote grail games, whether it's Little Samson, Bonk's Adventure NES, they're being held, a huge chunk of them, I think, by these uh, game sellers are in control of them, right? Right. At the same time, you have the collectors out there, like we mentioned before, uh, if you're into NES collecting, you've been into it for a while. You have all the common games. You have all the very common games. Correct. So when I go to these collections, I will see boxes and boxes and boxes of the dirt common NES games now sitting there. And they're not being bought. They are just sitting there. Um, and you will hear about the deals being made for, yeah, someone will pick up a little Samson maybe. So maybe someone will pick up a Panesian uh, game like Bubble Bath Babes. Or maybe uh, at like a Nintendo World Championship will we'll trade hands in per- person. But I'd say we're getting to that dangerous point where there are more games sitting in sellers' hands than people are interested in buying those games. I 100% agree, and that's kind of what I was talking about is that there's because the value has gotten so crazy, and I think it's the diff, even the mindset of a lot of collectors out there that you know if things are going to cost a lot of money. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for you know top tier stuff, or I'm gonna go for a subset, and that that middle ground games, especially because it's so expensive. I think to go for a set now, those aren't selling great. If it's kind of like a not a game that's just okay on top of being not a highly sought after game. I'm seeing a lot of that stuff sit. And I think the middle, the middle part of the market is just evaporating. So you have the cheap stuff that sells, I think, especially the good stuff that's fun to play that will always typically, I think sell if the price is right, just because it's cheap. And then you'll have the high end stuff that, people always want because they can put that in their game collection and be a mantelpiece. But that middle ground, mm-mm. nope. It's, You're talking like the, the $20 to $60 game, yep. something like that? Yeah, I see, okay. I see, see that's a much harder sell now because it's just kind of eh, and it's a lot of money to blow on a game that's just okay. You know, it was one game that I specifically, in my head, I went to too many games, which is probably the biggest retro gaming um, convention on the East Coast, uh, or gaming in general. Uh, obviously, the West Coast, Northwest, and there's there's uh, Portland's the motherload. You have the Seattle one, for example, classic game 
uh, Expo comes up in uh, Vegas still every couple of years. Um, but the one game that I was shocked I saw five copies of, and I counted, only one sold that whole weekend on the NES was Blackjack. Huh, really? Yep, that's a good example. Blackjack is a rare game. I would argue that Blackjack is a lot harder to find than Little Samson Agreed. is. Agree. Uh, in, in the book, I almost made Little Samson very uncommon instead of rare. I was teetering. I was like, this might be just very uncommon. It's just people think it's rare because it's worth a lot because people like the game. It's an excellent game. But Blackjack, five copies, and I heard one sold that weekend because it was like a, you know, a good deal on that one. If this was about three, four years ago, I'd say, I'd argue that all five of those copies would have been gone. I totally agree. I, that was a hard, hard one for me to find. Yeah, that's not because that's a game that really speaks to. Okay, are you collecting here, or you really want to play this game? Because no one wants to buy blackjack to play. It. Correct. You know, it's it's a very simple game. You know, it's not a bad game, but it does what it says on the cover. You know, it's blackjack. But there's no way in hell you're going to buy that game unless you're looking to complete a set. Uh, there's no one out there looking to, to get a subset of crappy, you know, or semi-mediocre games that are rare. So when I saw that, that really a light bulb went off, and I said, "Okay, I think we've peaked now. I think, I think there's less collectors going for full sets or a lot of the rare games versus the ones that are in sellers' hands." Agree. And that I'm sorry, I'm, it's a, obviously that's anecdotal, but you know, th- that weekend I saw, you know, one guy had a couple Steam events, or another seller had like three or four little Samsons, and I think those are selling too at a much slower lower rate because I think we're getting to that point where okay, do I really want to pay? $1,000 for a cart-only Little Samson. And I think we're hitting that point where now we're getting to the... the Not that it's unreasonable. How do you define that? You're talking to someone that spent five figures on a game before. But for a game like Little Samson, where if you go to a show, you can find 10 copies. Is that really a $1,000 game then at that point? I don't you know, think like, so. That's, yeah, I mean, I agree. And with all the reproduction copies out there, and just it's at that point where it's it's just mind-blowing what what some of the stuff's worth and i think especially with regular nintendo i'm definitely seeing even a demand like i can even just look at my youtube videos and there's less people watching my nintendo based youtube content on regular really? nest yeah one thing i've noticed is that standard nintendo uh videos that i do get less views in a, versus base Sega Genesis or Super yeah. Nintendo. Yeah, versus yeah, definitely. Super Nintendo is still pretty popular. Um but I don't know if it's because there's more content out there. I mean, there's a lot of factors there, but um I definitely I definitely see Nintendo Nintendo's at its peak. It's it's definitely at least at least on a collectability level, there's there's a slight there's a sl- on a slight downside there. Um, and I think that part of the other thing too is I think there's more and more people that grew up with things after Nintendo now. So you have Super Nintendo, N64, PlayStation. Um, those people with disposable income, that's what they're going to pursue. Or dinosaurs on YouTube. I mean, oh, yeah. YouTube's for younger people. So <laughs> yes, it is. We're talking. We're talking about you know a system that's been Super Nintendo's been been dead for almost 20 years now. Only 20 years. And so, yeah, it makes sense that that's a time when it gets sort of the popularity peak or when it starts to rise more and more. And, and you know, game prices on Super Nintendo have been going up for, what, four years now? You know, um, a lot. And then Genesis followed a little bit. Everything went up, but, you know, Super Nintendo probably went up, I'd argue, the most out of the other consoles post uh, NES. Um, 
Do you, do you see there? We, we we alluded to there not being a crash, but I have seen a couple of uh, at least a few big collectors sell off a chunk of their collection or get out of it. Um, do you think there'll be a panic, or does there be a quiet wave where the collectors will try to keep it quiet that there isn't, uh, you know, a quote unquote you call it correction in the market where maybe that little Samson comes down to like five hundred dollars instead of a thousand, for example, or or maybe you know all the uh, twenty to sixty dollar games come back down to fifteen, or what, which I think is going to happen. All the three to eight dollar games go back down to one to four. It'll be it'll turn more into like twenty to hundred collecting where you won't be able to give away. Uh, a bases loaded two game for a dollar, like you won't be able to. I see two realities, and and it's hard to speculate, but I do believe I think the middle part of the market is going to have a correction, and part of that is that the collectors over time have changed as well, and so I think as time went on and things got popular, people started getting into games because it was popular. It it was you know they. People hold on to things that have value. When people see things lose value, that's when they start to determine whether or not they should get out. Nintendo, um, especially that kind of type of generation, I think that as time goes on, many of those people that grew up with Nintendo are starting to have kids or had kids or at a point where space is limited. Um, it takes up a lot of space. And as prices have gone up, it's also changed a lot of attitudes about the collector market. I've seen the collector market in itself kind of change, not necessarily for the better. Um, there's a lot of people my age that um, have have gotten out mostly because of just other collectors, <laughs> or it's hard to find, or YouTube, or etc. I mean, it's it's a lot of different factors, but I see. I see that the middle part of the market is going to change. And I don't know how extreme that is, but I know that it's... I definitely see more Nintendo stuff at cheaper prices, which is great because I'm trying to go for a near-complete Nintendo set, and I don't care about the value. I just... Uh, I'd like to <laughs> like to go after some of that uncommon stuff, and I've seen, I've seen prices drop about 15% over the last year. You're talking, again, like the, middle the middle of the ground. The middle of the ground. Like the pot... Yeah. So the not just not just the uncommon games or or even a rare game that isn't sought after like blackjack yeah. for example. Conan the Barbarian. We're talking even like Conan. The, yeah, it's not not a great game. Not a great but game it's and uncommon. It's hard to find. Yep. Um, but are, do you see that even with the popular common games, something like a like a Contra that peaked at like say forty dollars and maybe that comes down a little bit because everyone has it and they're not going to pay that much for Contra? Or is that going to still maintain its value? I think it's going to still t- retain its value because. If if you buy an S, if you buy, buy an S clone console console, you still want to play those classics. And with and unless those classics flood the market, they're gonna there's less available. Um, a good a good friend of mine, I know you know him too, Corey. Corey's a local vendor, uh, has a store, Classics and Oddities, and his challenge is that he doesn't have those common titles walk in the store still, so sure. he can put really any price on them. When they do come in, and people will buy them, mm-hmm. and so that's that's where he's at. Um, and I would say that's fairly common across brick and mortar stores. Now on eBay, it might be a little bit different, but there's just there just there's there isn't more of those being made. So the games that are popular, that are fun to play, which luckily a lot of the Nintendo ones are common, those are going to keep its value. It's the ones that people don't play that don't give a crap about, like Conan the Barbarian for Nintendo. Um, those are the ones I think that are going to be harder to sell moving forward because I think less people are going to care 
and less less people are going to spend the money at what the price, what the card is currently at. And so I think the other thing, the other reality moving forward is that it'll be really interesting to see if the, how brick and mortar stores survive. You know, we fast forward 10 years, you know, when, when I think the craze is going to die down is less supply out there going to affect prices as well. So it'll it'll be really interesting to see that. I think that we're right now we're brick and mortar retro game stores, for the most part, are on life support, and that I think, you think so. I think so. Within ten years, I think within ten years, I think it's going to be a much harder thing to do. Um, we'll see, and part of that is just availability of product. And so I'm just kind of kind of keeping an ear to the ground uh, locally because you know I put on a charity game event, so I I, I like vendors to 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 be okay and to do okay but i think it'll be really interesting to see moving forward in the next 10 years to see how that will affect the market i predict well sure i i I predict that brick and mortar stores in the next 10 years will see a significant decline or or maybe the ones i get into it later never got their footing they're the ones we got for you know uh last in first out sort of yeah i think i think established stores like video game wizards in portland I, th- I see stores like that doing all right. The the big stores that can 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 diversify and, and to do other things, but I think the small ones much harder time moving forward. Sure. Uh, while we're talking, I wanted to check out the price of Contra because that was interesting. And I use price charting. Now you, we can have a whole conversation about price charting. I think overall it's good uh, to have something like this available as long as it's as long as they track. Uh, also, sales that are done privately, which I've spoken to the guy who runs at JJ Games about that um, about being able to incorporate some sales like that. it's I know it's tough, but that's what they do for sports card publication in the past and comics. But I did look up Contra. Contra, according to price charting, peaked at $47.95 loose June 2016. We are we are a year later. It's $27.50. So that's a decline of, what is that, 40% lower? Something like that. You've also or is that, yeah. You've also seen uh, cheap multi carts being produced recently. I, I don't know how often, but there's been some really cheap pirated multi carts available that have the, like 501 and these cartridges that have a lot of the classics on. And I think the rise in multi cart collecting and a lot of collect a lot of collectors that just get the classic consoles. But then get instead of collecting the games, they'll get a multi cart and call it good. And I wonder if sure. that's affecting the market as well. Uh, DuckTales, uh, the highest it ever was was actually for some reason. Maybe this is when they announced the remastered one. Twenty one dollars loose in March two thousand thirteen. It went back down. June of last year, twenty dollars thirty five cents. Now thirteen dollars sixty five cents. Again, that's about a forty percent decrease. It's a pretty big in price. Yeah, definitely. In- so, mm-hmm. and this is surprising me just because I, I guess I don't being that I'm not collecting for NES anymore. Just like the you know the few games I have left to, to look for. Besides, I look for manuals. I'm down to like fifteen or twenty. I don't track these prices as much. Whenever I have conversations with Ian, I'm also even thinking, Wow, am I ahead of the curve? Am I behind the curve when it comes to these prices? Like, like where am I at when it comes to this stuff? So now I'm getting almost like a crash course now in terms of, of pricing now. Maybe they peaked a year ago. I don't know, even for these popular ones. I've seen a change in the market in general in the last year. And I, it's it's the mood. It's um, just talking to local game stores. Um, some, some local game stores I've talked to are struggling. 
Some of the bigger ones are doing okay. But again, it, it goes back to that whole mentality of collecting. You know, at what point is it too expensive to purchase something? Or at what point do I just kind of get a multi-cart call good or get a Raspberry Pi? Or it's, I think there's, there's more and more people that are, that are accepting that that is okay to just to play the games and call it good. We have more and more people that have grew up with emulators and just playing the ROMs is okay. And, you know, like you said, you know, we're, we are dinosaurs. And so there'll always be a pocket of people that will prefer physical media. And, and I'm thankful for that. And, and there's nothing wrong with playing stuff on an emulator box or, but it's, but it, it will affect, it will affect prices. And because if less people are buying, the demand goes down and therefore drives the price down. And so it'll be interesting sure. to see how low things will go and at, at what point at what point does it really affect things significantly. Let's see. Little Samson peaked uh, last summer at twelve fifty. It went down a little bit. Now it looks like it's about eleven thirty, so a slight difference. Let me see dinosaur peak. But that also can be a case of and I've seen this before. Where there are sellers that have, there's certain sellers that have at least a dozen copies of a single game, and that bothers me more than anything probably else in this whole scene. Oh yeah, because obviously, because obviously that affects the market. Yeah. You know, when you see a game like Little Samson as a prime example, uh, you know, triple in value in, in four or four years, or double in value over a year. Basically, let's see, December of 2014 was at 677, and then you look a year later, it's at a, you know 1200, you know, like just about. Or $1,000. So there's something going on there besides just supply and demand. It's obviously people outside the quote-unquote scene getting into it. I mean, does that bother you, or is it the same sort of thing where it's to be expected that these guys that maybe came from the toy collecting world see video games being profitable and get into it? I mean, when I went to Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con last year, which is sort of the, the, the benchmark of all geek culture, for the first time ever when I went to Comic-Con last year, I saw... Probably two or three uh, dealers of comic books that were graded also have graded video games there. And I was like, that's it. We've peaked. This is it. When you have people that have no interest at all uh, from the comic book world trying to see that they're noticing that these video games have value, sealed that are graded, and trying to say, to, to try to get into that market, that's when you know I think we've peaked. That's my personal sort of moment. And that happened last year. Yeah, I think that um, the, big, the big thing is I, you know, my hat's off to resellers. Uh, that are selling just an out of out of print product that you know that they that something walked into their store and they're 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 selling and they're making a profit to to keep the lights on. That's one thing. There's another thing of being a, a reseller and trying to manipulate the market by trying to have a corner on all the product so that it raises the value of something. We see this. We saw this with the Nest Classic Mini, which was a retail product, which you know. I think you're a scumbag if you're trying to uh, to profit off that, off something that's that's really uh, trying to be sold at retail and new. Same thing with a classic game. If someone is trying to manipulate the product, the, the stock of something, by going out and purchasing all the Flintstones 2, uh, Surprise the Dinosaur Peak, carts, so that they can make money off of it. I think that's pretty shady, and I, I do not support it whatsoever. I had a seller say it to my face. This was, um, uh, I want to say, what was the last classic game expo I went to? 2012. To my face, he said he had about, I forget, it was either somewhere between 12 and 18 Dinosaur Peaks he had purchased. 
And you don't think that drives the price up because you're outbidding everyone else trying to get one for their collection? This is the argument I have sometimes with other people, uh, somewhat big collectors or even people in the, the retro gaming scene where like, oh, no, it's impossible to manipulate the market. Or, oh, no, it, it is possible. It's not just simple supply and demand. Scalping, obviously, is a factor. And there is a psychology that goes on with, with, with bidding on eBay to be that winner. And there, like we like we saw with this Steam event, there could be some shill bidding going on. Oh, yeah. We don't know. There's all these factors. The one that I'm not sure you ever heard of that we covered on the podcast was uh, Incognito. A guy tested this theory out because I spoke about price manipulation. That's possible. So one guy went out and bought all the uh, black and white Game Boy Rampart games, all the ones he could find over. I think it was a six month period. So when you look at the price, the price like quadrupled. And it, I don't think it went back down that much. I'm going to check it right now, actually, because I'm interested. But that's that was a prime example. Yep. Uh, he bought. Yeah. If you look at if you look at the jump up on price charting <laughs> between it was like uh, 2014, the price jumped from like an eight dollar game to like twenty to twenty five. That was one guy that did that. Yep. Just one guy that took a game that no one really cared about, Rampart and Game Boy, and he bought the ones he saw, and the price just went up. Then it crashed. They look like it's been jumping around. So it's just amazing me how people can deny this. And I wonder if they deny it because they're afraid of the value of their collection going down. Absolutely. Or people – Or people – you think that's what it is? I think so. I think there's a lot of people out there that are scared about the value going down because that's honestly why they got into it. And, you know, I I say this time and time again when I'm, when I'm doing my, you know, presentations at various game shows about, you know, get into something for the right reasons – you know, it's one thing if you're if it's your business, okay? That's that's straight up simple. Your it's your livelihood. That's that's fine. But if you're getting into video games uh, just purely for investment, it's a total gamble, and you need to understand what comes up comes down, and it eventually will come down. I don't believe in the up and up theory forever. It ultimately parts of the game market are gonna have a correction. It, it is coming. I don't know when it is. I predicted it would already happen. It didn't. But I'll tell you what, this last year, this last year, I've definitely seen a mood change just in the collector community around here. It's just, I don't know, people are just kind of even agreeing that, and these are a lot, a lot of these people are vendors, that they're agreeing that, at least for Nintendo, that the market has peaked. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just looked at the few right now, but I'm going to start doing this more and more just to see. But it looks like... I think Contra, that's a huge one to me, because Contra is a very common game. It's one. It's, it's a five-star game, and that one, like I said, that dropped 40%. That was shocking to me. I never thought it... I never knew it got up close to $50 average. That's, that's amazing crazy. to me that it got that high. <laughs> a game that they produce millions and millions of, you know, like a game that everyone had. Like, if you had an NES, nine times out of ten in the 80s and early 90s, you had Contra for it. All my friends had Contra. It's a great game. So, it's five stars, according to a certain NES guy. That's right. But, <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> what, what what do you – in terms of investing, yeah, I'm similar in terms of um, – I always say if you want to invest, buy stocks, be an angel investor, invest in a business, you know, something that you have a definite – you can see the future a little bit and sort of guide. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like playing roulette when you're buying video games in order to retire on to me. That's just my opinion on that. Um, I've seen big titles like uh, the mo- one of the most famous one being I think Caltron Six and One it used to be a thousand dollar sealed game. Then guess what? They find a whole truckload of a Mexico sealed, and then the value goes down to like three hundred dollars, you know, on it. 
Um, the other, what was the other one? I think the Atari Twenty Six Hundred one, Atari Warriors. That's exactly that Motor was, Rodeo. Yep. Uh, Atari, Atari Warriors was one. I was like, wow, this is a very rare game. Guess what? Then they find a few pallets of them, right? And then all of a sudden, the, the price plummets. Then in Venezuela, they, that that extra stock appeared, and now that game is like I haven't looked recently, but I think it's in the twenty dollar range. I mean, it's like for a sealed copy. Yeah, for a sealed copy. So it's, it's it's one of those just strange things, and it gets back to I guess the the purity of it. But that's interesting about the 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 heart of the business. What do you think about the evaporation of uh you know of uh physical media? So do you do you think there'll be a you say they're going to be gone? You know, some are going to disappear in the next few years, which I agree with. Twenty years from now, do you think we're even going to have a retro video game store at that point? No. Or that or that or that be like an antique shop where you'll get. Some people every now and then going in and looking for their, oh, let's buy a dusty old Super Mario 3, but will people really be interested in buying PS3 games 20 years from now? I don't think so. I think that uh, I think having a pure retro game store will be a novelty. You might find it in the big cities like Los Angeles, Portland, New York, but your standard town, you will not have enough product to survive in 20 years having a pure retro game store. It might be a novelty or part of a store, you might have a little corner, but honestly, I don't. I don't see that happening because there's not going to be enough product around for it to survive. I think the other thing too, one thing that differs this from DVDs or records or something else, is the format differences make this stuff really hard to keep um, <laughs> in in selling condition. There's different formats. There's different quirks about different consoles that make it pretty challenging to provide this. Um, and I think unless you really know what you're doing, you're not going to be able to survive. And and there's a lot of people that are just getting into it because they see easy money. And you also see these same people not being able to make it because they don't know what they're doing. So do you think the knowledge is, is going to be lost for people like us and we die off and no one cares anymore? I think no. <laughs> I think YouTube, one thing I really appreciate about YouTube is that getting the information out there about a console and having, you know, having some physical museums. I'm, I'm one for I'm, – I'm the first one to admit that the more people that are passionate about preserving something, the better. I don't think there should be a corner market on it. Um, I Hopefully there are museums everywhere that – showcase the physical media aspect and and i'm not seeing i'm not seeing that part of it because it's a it's a huge freaking challenge to do it i i want to do this locally and we're going to see how close i'm going to get in the next 10 years but i think that there there will always be dinosaurs out there that appreciate this old stuff but i've told this on several other podcasts i see myself like the old train people in 25 years you know, I'm going to be at some little spot talking and being passionate about video games. And there will be a percentage of people caring about it. But I th- I don't know how big that will be, you know. I'll probably have my little my little game hat on and my little, you know. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know what? That's actually fascinating because, yeah, train collecting was huge, wasn't yeah. it, at one point? Yeah. Uh, you're, t- you're talking kids that grew up in the 30s to 50s. And then I guess that got big and probably peaked in the 80s. I remember my dad had uh, collected trains in the 80s. Trains was everywhere. Had, had a train and you talk to these people, they're super passionate about it. And they do these little shows. And these shows are like sub 100 people. And they're usually older men. And, and I see that as physical media collectors. As time goes on, it's going to be very, it's going to be very niche. 
and it's gonna it's there's gonna be people that care about it, but because it's gonna get so hard to maintain and collect that that few are gonna do it. Especially very fewer people are gonna be willing to have this on display in a physical area where others can play and touch on it. Sure. Um, do you see companies like uh, Limited Run Games providing physical uh, media for games that are digital download, helping sustain the, the livelihood of, of physical media? Or is that like a stopgap? You think it will have a, a little a little effect? So I have a very um, – this is an honest opinion about Limited Run Games. So this is just uh, – <laughs> I haven't shared this a lot with many people. I compare Limited Run Games to comic books, foil comic books of the 90s. And I'm being honest here. I think it's a great concept, but what they've tried to do is make a false collecting market with games that are good and bad. There's not, I have nothing against limited run games, but I think it's it's kind of like it's a false collecting item. Is is what I whenever you identify and try to sell a game as a collector's item, it probably isn't. The market's peaked. You know, and that's that's just my thoughts on it. I just think limited run games is great, but I think that I think and I think as time moves on, and I'm already seeing this at at shows up here. I went to a small video game show, and there was a ton of that stuff everywhere, and it wasn't selling. It just, yeah. Do you think it's a case of maybe the collectors uh, helping uh, prop it up in the beginning because they're the ones that want to, you know, still have physical means. Um, you know, obviously the Vita, putting out games for a dead handheld like the Vita, that can't all be collectors, can it? There's some, probably some hardcore Vita people out there who actually want a game in physical form. Yeah, I think it, there's a market out there for certain people, but the more that Limited Run makes, it doesn't become limited anymore. It becomes kind of more of a burden and a hassle. And I've talked to a lot of collectors, and they've kind of commented this. They said, well, at first they were cool because they were hard to get and limited supply, and now it's just it's just kind of a thing. And now other companies are doing it. Like play Asia is doing their own kind of limited, you know, physical media version. They did it with Medea Castilla, um, and some other games out there, some other companies too, that are jumping in on this idea. I think as time moves on, it will become kind of a fad and kind of die away. And you might see companies still do it in the future, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, it makes me not want to collect it. The more that they do and the harder it is to, to get it, it just I, – I didn't grow up with it either. I don't have that, like, childhood connection that I do that versus, like, Castlevania or Contra or Robotron. And What about – um? what if there's something like I'm, – I'm actually excited personally about something like the Night Trap release just because it's actually the ability to play it in a better well, format I, than different. what we ever had before. I will before. probably track that down because I, I remember that, and I'm a huge Sega CD fan. So that, that to me, like I would say limited run games on a small level, I'll probably pick up an occasional game. But does it do really anything for me? Well, first of all, I don't see myself really pursuing um, collecting PS4 in large volumes. I'm going to pick up stuff that's novelty or interesting. And that and Night Trap, totally going to pick that up. Because, you know, I grew up with that. That was pretty interesting. You know, I, I played that at a rental store. And I remember, I remember playing that, and my, my my parents were coming over, seeing what I was playing. I remember turning it off. <laughs> didn't want my parents to <laughs> didn't want my parents to see what I was playing. So you know, stuff stuff like that's pretty interesting. And it, again, it's nothing against limited run games because they're you know they're a business. They're just trying to to you know 
keep keep above water and I think they're providing a service that that many people enjoy. It's just I don't think it's a true collectible item. I think it's 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 more of like a 90s foil comic book. Well, I was still thinking of just at least the value of still producing physical media uh, because, it, it, you know, the argument always is that physical media itself is dying for new consoles. And at least you'll have someone out there trying to produce it, at least on a preservation standpoint. Yeah. It'll be easier to get these games in the future and, and, and go back and play it them. Will be nice. It will be nice for that aspect, yes. Do you think there's room for reproductions of, of disc-based games? Say, like, someone goes out and, and does, like, you know, reproduces the Sega, the actual Sega Saturn, you know, Night Trap, do an official release. Would that be something you think is possible or would there be a market for that? Well, I know that there's a company in Europe that's already making some pretty decent quality reproduction discs. And I got a couple. I got Time Cop from them, which was not released. And the quality on the discs is pretty good. I definitely see reproduction disc games happening now is that is that official though or is that is oh, that no. not official <laughs> no and i think I, I it'll be interesting to see what companies do with their backlog and i think i think they'll be I, I, and i'm actually surprised nintendo hasn't done this i did this on a uh on one of my channels uh one of my videos i kind of said what's stopping nintendo from making a limited cartridge run of a particular unreleased game well, it's hard to make those ROM boards yeah. from scratch nowadays, and yeah. you know, in big bundles, right? That, that but, they don't but, have those factories anymore. But this space, I definitely see that uh, companies testing the water. But whether it won't be a big appeal, I think it'll be a there'll be a collector market, maybe in a small a small factor. I just, I don't know. I think it's pretty niche, and I think that um, I think part of the challenge is because the more limited run games makes, uh, the more it doesn't become a limited run anymore. <laughs> oh, become, you mean in terms of the amount? Yeah, uh, for that run, they, they make twenty thousand games. You know, um, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Um, I've, I've spoken to the guys before about certain things. Yeah, they're nice people. I mean, I just I have nothing against them. What do you, What do you think? Just uh, we, we briefly spoke about the Steam Events auction. When you see something like that, what's your gut reaction? Forty two thousand dollars for a game that uh, there's a twenty plus sealed Steam events that are known to exist. What does that tell you? Well, that tells me that someone rich out there wanted to have a very expensive mantelpiece. Um, and and really, that comes down to it, that someone out there with a lot of money wanted to have the rarest Nintendo game sealed just to brag about having the rarest game sealed. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it – that's – I mean, something like that. I mean, that's that's really what someone someone – or someone, maybe a collector, that was the last game they needed – and uh, they got a very large loan, and 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 want that last sealed game. But that is is ridiculous. I mean, I I, I get it. It doesn't surprise me on value whatsoever. But it's just, um, I think part of it being trying to preserve video games. There's so much information on, or, or attention on the holy grail stuff, and there's not a lot of attention on like the kind of the oddball stuff. And so yes. it really. It really it doesn't make me sad per se, but it's just like I I get asked all the time, what's my rarest video game in my collection? And I you know, it's usually my answer is stadium events or or some and I, but I try to I try to pick something else sometimes just because I'm tired of talking about stadium events. And so <laughs> it's really interesting. But I going back to that, that's why that's my thought. So that's gonna be that's someone very wealthy is wanting that and to show other people that he has it. Well, are they just? Is it just sort of they're unaware that there's so many others out there? 
that could possibly I mean Tim Atwood has six still in his that he's holding on to. That he could sell those at any moment. Yeah, he can he could give 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 one to someone. He can give away two of those to a collector and make them sign something that they won't be selling it for at least ten years, and that's two people out of the market for that. I always argue that the the, the danger in investing in some of these to me statements is oddball in and of itself. Yeah. Because it's a game that doesn't it's not a good game. It was released on, it was re released on the console and it's we don't know if there's any still left. We don't know if Bandai has a bunch still somewhere in Japan. You know, we don't know if Nintendo there's no there's no confirmation that they were actually destroyed. There's no confirmation that they were even uh, technically even recalled. We don't know. Uh, we're still waiting. I'm, I'm trying to work with someone to, to work with to contact Howard Phillips to really look back in his records to say what was the actual, you know, what was the actual information at the time? What, were, what, what did they tell Bandai once Nintendo bought the rights to the Family Fun Fitness Pad? Uh, what did they tell them? Just don't ship it anymore. Don't make it anymore. You know, we don't know. We have absolutely no clue, and that's what's scary about this stuff. Like, what what happens if this is another Akari Warriors for 2600? You bring up a good point because that could happen with anything, and that's why I tell people when you're investing, you're gambling. There's no guarantee that things will keep their value, and that's that's really what my message is. You know, I'm not trying to doubt. Like, I don't hate people that game invest, but the, my big issue is that there isn't a guarantee. You know, my my advice is get into the hobby if you're if you're collecting video games just know know what you're getting into and understand that value can change all the time and that should you know if you're really wrapped up into the value of things and nothing else don't do it because you'll eventually get disappointed <laughs> and and then what happens if you know I'm I'm ecstatic actually when when a large lot of stuff gets found because there's collectors out there that can finally afford getting stuff and I love that. Love seeing that, you know. And I hate I hate it when their game's really great, a great game, and it's hard to find. And and that that the more people that can that that we can share this hobby with, uh, the better. And and it's it's a tough market right now because you have a lot of different people for not always the best reasons jumping in. How do you feel like the the most famous uh, one, which was Tim Atwood? How do you feel when he gets attacked by a certain uh, you know gaming community? Uh, for basically, they feel threatened that there's this guy they didn't know about that has so many sealed games that can destroy the market if he wants to. How does it make you feel? Does that does that put everything in perspective for you? Like, okay, these are people that should not be collecting. Then uh, they should be instead of celebrating this man and what he has had in you know for 20 years, virtually unknown to them. Like, I mean, does it, I mean, personally, it made me it made me doubt the whole scene in terms of wow, is there really more people into this for the wrong reasons for, than the right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wait, wait a minute. I have a big tear for them. Wait, okay, there it is. Yeah. I, I, I could care less. Um, those people that are so upset that their investment is affected by someone who, who really is kind of, it's kind of cool that he did that actually. And, and I know that, you know, I've been followed, followed some of your podcasts on that about, you know, uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's you need to you need to if you're really in getting into this just for investment then you will be disappointed because who knows what else is out there and i think that there's a ton of people that are sitting on product and and i and i guarantee when the when the market starts to change you're going to see a lot of people try to get out and it could be over time who knows when it will happen it will happen though how big of a correction will be unknown 
I people have asked me that all this time. I'm not a speculator. I didn't get into this for money, and I'm definitely not going to keep doing it because of money. You know, people ask me all the time what my collection's worth. I have no freaking idea. Nor do I really care. That's not why I'm doing it. You know. Do you feel uh do you feel frustration because it's hard to not hard to peg certain people that are collectors, but when collectors look at people like me and you and you know, we we have very valuable collections. You know, probably six figures at least somewhere. Um, and, and they say, you know, we say to them, well, I really don't care about the value. Do you, do you think well, some people, they said it doesn't click for them. It's like, well, how can you not care about the value when you're sitting on a gold mine? Absolutely. And I tell them that and it's like, it doesn't compute. Well, why don't you know how much it's worth? Because honestly, I don't give a crap. I really <laughs> don't. I mean, it's not about that for me. It's, it's because I love this stuff. I love collecting it. I love talking about it. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what. This hour of talking, this hour and a half that we've been doing, is the best part of my day. Just talking about video games, I guarantee this will be the best part of my day, probably my week, of just talking about video games. Let's not get nuts, John. I'm not that interesting. Come on. Well, but. I, it's, it, but, but I'm serious. But it's because I care about video games, not about the value. I care about the history. I love talking about it. I love talking about it to other people that give a crap about this stuff. And and really, that's what it comes down to. And if you just care about the, the investment, the value part of it, you're missing the point. You really are. Speaking of that, what do you think of, what's your first reaction when you hear the term shelf collector? Well, a lot, I've been called that quite a bit, and it's it's tough. Um, there are shelf collectors out there, and and I, I personally don't have an issue with shelf collectors. Um a shelf collectors is different than someone that invests in something. Shelf collector might be, okay, I grew up with this game and I want to have it on my shelf because when I look at that, it reminds me of something positive from the childhood. I don't think you have to play everything you collect. I mean, I have a huge collection. I don't play everything I own. Um, I, part of it is that, you know, I essentially will have unlimited supply of YouTube content forever as long as I want to do this. And so, I don't, the term shelf collector, I think it's, you know, for people that just game and don't collect, that that, uh, that don't have a filter, that's what they want to call people that collect physical media. And it's just, it's it's kind of a um, a derogatory term. And, and I, I think that it, I don't have an issue with it. If someone wanted to call me a shelf collector, so be it. I think it's a little, un- I think it's a little unfair. Uh, I mean, hell, even E's calling me that. I mean, hell, I, I obviously I played. My, I've played all my games. I did a book. I, I do a charity event. I mean, God bless you. I man. grew up with it. Uh, <laughs> this is why I think it's unfair, because it doesn't look at the entire picture. Correct. And I'll bring and I'll bring you as an example and me. And I'm not calling you a shelf collector. I'm saying you can be called one. I've been called one. The quote unquote shelf collector is also the person that is most likely then to go out and find those products or investigate and find quote unquote those oddball items to go out and investigate and find those things that someone who only cares about playing the popular games on an emulator or whatever else won't ever care about looking into. So I think the knowledge base for these rare items and for the weird stuff has it, it trickles down uh, in terms of interest. So you start with the person that wants to go after all the stuff that's known. Then it's like, okay, what is, what's the weird crap out there now? 
What's the stuff that was, you know, either unreleased or was released and recalled? What's the stuff that's regional? What's the stuff that 99.9% of even collectors won't think about? But that has to start with someone that wants to put a bunch of stuff on shelves. I think that's where it starts. Um, yep. I would I would not have gotten to the point where I am now finding stuff that to me is interesting because you know what it's not interesting for me to go out and now get every box for NES games. Instead, I'm going to find that weird accessory no one knows about. I'm going to find that weird peripheral peripheral that there's not even a video of on YouTube showing it off. That's I think more quote unquote a person like me or a shell collector versus a random person that just wants to play Contra and Rescue Rangers. That's just my opinion on it. So that's why I think the term is unfair. Yeah, I, I don't like hearing it. I mean, it's it's definitely, you know, and I and I would say I'm much more than a shelf collector, right? You know, my my still, my long-term goal is to have a museum. And uh, I'm pretty ambitious about that. And I have talked to some local people and, and at least started a conversation and a game plan of moving forward. That's fantastic. And I've I've had... A thought in my head about okay, if I get in my forties, what the hell am I going to do with these games? Um, at that point, like, what am I going to do with with this? What am I what am I doing with uh, two games worth combined? I don't know, sixty thousand dollars in a bank vault. What what does that do for me personally? Versus at least putting them on display, letting other people look at them, learn about the history, and enjoy them. Absolutely, you know, you're in a good spot too. Yeah, I am. Uh, San Diego, I think, is it's prime for it. Uh, Southern California, there's not a lot of that out here. I mean, we were just there's only you know SoCal Retro Gaming Expo just started up a couple of years ago, uh, and there's a big population here. But I think that's where I'm seeing it. People like uh, people like Steve Lynn, uh, Chris Kohler, obviously you have uh, Joe Santulli with with the uh, the Video Game History Museum in Texas, uh, who runs Digital Press. I think you're starting to see that switch from collector. To preservationists slash archivists, people like uh, Frank Cifaldi, too. All right, let's let's open up a museum. Let's share the knowledge. Absolutely, and have multiple ones. Yeah, yep. absolutely. I think that uh, we can benefit from uh, multiple people having these places where games can be preserved, and I think they need to be across the United States. And I I definitely don't want to have you know I'm not, I'm not going to have the the cornerstone of what I do. I just want to have it locally so I can have my eye on my collection (laughs) and then it's close, you know, and that, but I I have some ideas about what I want to do, but I definitely, definitely support multiple museums being opened up. I shouldn't, I don't believe that it needs to be one. I think that's a disservice to the preservation and that the more of these that we can have around the United States, the better we can preserve a larger majority of things. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely there definitely needs to be them. And hopefully in the future, I think we will see them as soon as the longer time goes. It is. I mean, I'm already I'm already telling my wife I go to a game show and I walk back with maybe a hand only a handful of things that I'm looking for. And my wife says, because you're looking for things that belong in a museum and they're just not there anymore. Oh, sure. But uh, yeah. Um, So we have what we have the Museum of Play in New York. We have the the. Video Game History Museum in Texas. Are there any others that are really out there? Yeah, there's a computer one that doesn't really do video games, which is understandably so. It's the one uh, with the the co-founder of Microsoft, uh, the Living Computer Museum in Seattle. Uh, it's a it's a cool museum. It's in a terrible part of town, and it's 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 cool. It's really cool, but. Ironically, there isn't even one in Seattle, which blows my mind. 
it, it really, if you really think about it, you know, the, the, and, and I, part of it is, I think, I think companies haven't thought like that. They've thought and focused so much on staying alive and selling a product. They haven't really, really, really fully understand how important their history is. Sure. And I think Nintendo, honestly, I think Nintendo's done a, a brilliant job with understanding that at least, at least on the surface, I think, I think there's many more things to come that, that are going to impress people. I, you know, I, I heard about what Sega had done. I don't know if you've heard this story, but Sega had a collection of all their games that they did. And they were in this little room and they were stacked on upon each other. And they were just like, the boxes were getting crushed. Oh no. And it was like, it was, it was terrible, I guess. But I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that worked at certain companies that the own company didn't know what they made, and oh or or history. I know it kills me. I mean, at one point there was Sega. Gen- uh, Sega had a president uh, that didn't even know that Streets of Rage was a franchise. <laughs> so I mean, that's a whole other story. But I mean, that's it's it's that type of thinking out there that that really can hurts the preservation. We need more companies to just archive everything because it matters. It matters, and I think it's important to have that history of something preserved. Well, Nintendo has what the little museum in the world of Nintendo, right? So they at least have something like that they have to something. show off. Yeah. I think they have the, the AVS prototype, I believe. Uh, you know, the original NES they have, I think, there, I believe, uh, for example. Uh, Someone might correct me in the comments if I'm wrong about that. Um, but yeah, I think that's where we're going to head. I'm not sure that it's going to spawn a ne- new generation going. If you even have a, a museum in every state in the U.S., which I don't think that'll ever happen yeah, uh, for I think, retro games. I think but, it'll be niche, and I think it'll be novelty, and it'll have to be a nonprofit and some way of funding to support it. And just time will tell. And, and again, it's, uh, I, I think it'll be important to have these things. And, and part of the reason why I think it's important to have in multiple locations is someone's going to go to the museum. They're going to remember that one of their family members worked at, I don't know, a place and they're going to dig up some old archive stuff and then they're going to donate it to this museum. And the, oh, sure. more, the more places that we can have that are like that, the more we're going to actually save some of the stuff that's rotting somewhere. That's a fantastic point. I mean, it's not like we've even found every prototype of games that are unreleased. I mean, absolutely. there's still ones out there that are still being found every year, which is amazing. Yeah, that's uh, It's crazy. absolutely amazing. Um, do you remember that we've, we've done, what, one or two panels together in the past? Yeah. yeah. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I remember, what was it? Was it, was it 2000? In, in uh, let's see, 2011 was my first Portland one. They still had it at the at the garage at the uh, the double tree, right? The, yeah. Basically underneath the yeah. garage. Yeah. Uh, what was it? It was about like I guess balancing. How do you balance being a video game collector with like real life? Was that sort of what it was? Yeah. Yeah. It was a great. It was a great <laughs> panel. It was it was cool having that with you. And again, I I I knew you're a big Nest collector, and and you know it's it's just it's been great to to keep our friendship over over time and. It's always it's always a pleasure seeing you and yeah it was I could tell early on that you were you were you were a passionate about collecting Nintendo you knew your stuff had a fantastic uh, video series and and I just knew that you know you were the real deal and uh, yeah it was great doing that and just how time has kind of con- came along I I left I left being on on board on the organizational board of PRGE that year. And I had a lot going on in my life. I had, you know, two jobs and just wanted to do my charity, local charity thing. And uh, it, it's it's neat to kind of kind of 
for me to come full circle where I've, I'm kind of gotten back into, into collecting and talking about it and kind of established my own identity as separate from PRGE, which I'm still friends with all of them and they've, they've definitely supported my local gaming event. So it's, it's cool. It's cool to see full circle, to see you, uh, successful is, is always a pleasure. And, and again, you, you, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. You know, that's, that's oh, really, geez, I mean, seriously, man, we need, we need that voice of reason out there and, uh, to say the things that are hard to say. And, and the thing is when you're honest and brutally honest with something, not everybody wants to hear it, but it's good to get it out there. Well, that's what I was trying to close the interview, by the way, but I was going to bring up something in a second about, well, about balancing life and, and, and collecting, but oh, we, yeah. can get that. we can get that. We can at least have another conversation. But speaking of the harshness, uh, me and Ian and I took some flack about uh, us getting down on repro labels um, when 8-Bit Guy, who's been, I think, a guest at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, when he was you know, talking about uh, you know, making repro labels, and we wanted to educate, I guess, the general uh, general audience about the dangers of that, and man, oh, we I got love it. talking we, about this. We got we got <laughs> hammered, and it's interesting that we get hammered by the people that aren't into video game collecting. Like, I think there's there's a there's a gap there between I think the dangers of it. I don't know where you actually stand on this. I don't know if you think. Oh, it's okay. we can, oh, we can totally talk about this. I love talking about this. In fact, all right, <laughs> I was one of the first shows to have a reproduction policy, and so uh, a lot of people don't know this because. Um, this happened a long time ago. I, I won't say exactly what I, who I was talking to, but I walked up and a vendor had a stadium event at a PRGE show. I was there. I think that was the 2011 show. <laughs> and it was a major problem. And so that conversation has evolved because more and more people are buying a reproduction. And so Portland Retro Gaming Expo, and I'm going to let them announced their policy but they will have a reproduction policy in place this next year this is a policy that uh part of the part of the person with discussion was chris trimu who sells reproductions by the way and and having strict policies on what can be reproduced and how the label should look on the cart and where that actually is located on a vendor's table and how it should be labeled and all that stuff in fact there was a, a, a particular vendor that had a conniption fit over this new policy because they didn't want to follow it. And wow. I have to say to that person, too bad. Because the, 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 the standard person is not going to have the knowledge or understand what they're buying. So you're like me. You hate where people say, well, it's the buyer's responsibility, not letting this, basically letting the seller off the hook for their unethical behavior. Absolutely. So we, well, let, let's just clarify. When you're saying reproductions, you're not talking homebrews. You're talking someone that – Gets a uh, a little Samson with the same label. Correct. Obviously, it may not be the same color, and then plops plops it down and is selling it for eighty bucks or a hundred or more. Yeah. So the the policy that we have is that uh, we don't allow, and this is Callus Gamers, this is not PRG. Callus Gamers sure. does not allow any North American game to be reproduced. Period. That if if you don't want a stadium events, you cannot sell it at our show if it's a reproduction. And so that you don't care about it having saying a repro on the label, that's still nope. not good. You don't nope. care if it's a different label, you just don't want it. Don't want it. And others, other shows, again, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of PRGE. I'm going to let them announce their reproduction policy. But uh, some shows have uh, accepted the fact that if it is a reproduction, it needs to have a reproduction on the label. I don't have that at my show because a label can be torn off. 
Sure. Uh, I love seeing the ones on eBay where, you know, the reproduction is the bottom left, and all of a sudden, oh, there's damage to that Dinosaur Peak label. Guess where? Bottom left of the label. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's not good. Um, so that's, that's what I try to always communicate, but I always get pushback. And it's obviously pushback from people that aren't video game collectors or people that don't run video game shops where this is, this is counterfeiting. Let's not sugarcoat this. This Correct. is not this is not innocent. This is this is um, you know, if this if this let's put it this way. If this was another industry, you know, they'd go after these people. Being that they're old video being that they're old video games that the publishers don't care about it. Like I mean, we, we don't even know who's actively, I mean, who, who owes the rights to little Samson that's going to care about it. You know what I mean? Like they don't care. They're not making money off it, so they're not going to do that. But if this was another industry making like Gucci bags or something, that would be uh, they'd be stopped lickety split. You know, yeah, it's tough, videos. and it's it's a it's a bad part of the market right now. And I and if there's any advice I can give out there to to buy in high end games, bring a bit set. Yep. And if a and if a vendor doesn't allow you to look inside the cart, then guess what? Don't do it. Yeah, because I was. What are they hiding? You know exactly. I I think it's hysterical that there's trying there's this movement to legitimize repros by selling them for hundreds of dollars. Like so, oh you yo so Dinosaur Peak it's a you know eleven hundred dollar cartridge. All right, so the repros four hundred or three hundred. It's like what? No, that's that costs you fifteen dollars on AliExpress.com to get that. I mean it's that's that's ridiculous. Um, so real quick, real quick. Your thoughts, we probably have the same thoughts on uh, the good old video uh, video game authority grading sealed games. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I, where do we start? Uh, I'll just say right now, I think it's a bunch of crap. And, oh, wow. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. All right. No, it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> bunch of crap. Never support. I don't have a single graded item in my collection, and I'm proud of it. And a single one. And the reason why is that this is a business. This is a business like anything else. They're not game experts. They, they, I do believe, started with other things and jumped into games because there wasn't anybody doing it. doesn't make them experts. In fact, I could set up a sealed grading service and probably have more knowledge than them. Just call it John Hancock's, you know, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down seal service and send it to me and, you know, I'll put it in a shiny box and, I'll say it's good, and it's it's just it's just so silly and stupid. Um, I just I, people don't buy don't buy this junk. Don't don't get your stuff graded. It it totally. I mean, you're putting your game in a coffin. If you ever want to get it out of one of these, good luck. You have to like you have to like destroy the case to get it out. I'm like, I, it's the stupidest thing. I. I really am against it. I've what is your against- uh, what is your what is your thoughts on people saying, "Well, those games were meant to be played anyway because they're still sealed." What is your thoughts on that argument? Well, I mean, if someone wants to preserve something in the original seal, that's great. But the reason why they're getting it graded is so that they can resell it. Yeah, they think you it's going to inflate, inflate the value artificially. It's yeah. musical chairs. It's it's the worst type of musical chairs because you want to you want to. You want to grade it, you then want to resell it, and you don't want to be the last person holding an expensive item that can't be sold. Sure. Yeah, they do action figures. They do dolls. You yeah. know, they, this is, I think they're also part of the extension of the people that do comics, I believe. They're going to be a Comic-Con accepting submissions, but I think it's going to be funny to see if, if someone's dropping off sealed games there. Yeah, and it's, it's really it's, – it comes down to investment. It's everything that I hate about it. And and it's not about preservation. They 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 kind of 
hide behind that. You know, for people that are into it, they hide behind saying it's preservation. It's not about preservation. It's about reselling. Um, what if I told you, you probably won't be shocked, that uh, basically one of the higher-ups in the video game collecting community that has knowledge of this um, got a resealed game graded as authentic. Would that surprise you? And it, Not at all. And I know that that's happened multiple times, and I know that they've made a lot of mistakes. And I just, it's just a business, and it doesn't, it, it, it defeats the whole purpose of doing it. And, you know, they've made money. They've, the people that have done it have made a lot of money, and they don't want to hear anything else because that'll affect their bottom, their bottom, their bottom dollar. Hey, I love the actual acrylic cases. I got one built for the NWC cards. I mean, that's yeah, fine. Of course. If you want to do that, that's fine. You want a protected color, but yeah, I think. Absolutely. I mean, that's different. I am happy, though, that it never took off. That it's still very, very, very niche. Like when I went to um, uh, too many games, I saw one, only really one seller featuring graded games. And guess what? They also had graded comic books, surprisingly. Yep. Um, yeah, but and no one, but no one was buying. Yeah. But I don't think anyone's buying them though. I just don't. I think it's a very s- small group of people that are interested in finding the ones that are out there, getting a, a, an 85 or, God forbid, a 90 grade or 95, whatever, uncirculated, and then just. I think it's a very small group. It is a small group, and it's, it, you know, I've never been a cellophane collector. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a cellophane collector. Just know that um, I'm not going to really support it. And it's 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 just goes down the rabbit hole of, like, you. It, it's everything that I hated about collection, collecting action figures transferred over to video games. Sure. You know, well, I got upset about collecting an action figure because I had a dent on one corner. <laughs> and, and, and that's and that defeats kind of the whole purpose of getting into the hobby of collecting video games. That's why I got out of collecting comics and action figures because I wanted to play what I owned. And I, I respect if you know I have a couple sealed games in my collection that are crazy expensive, and of course I keep them sealed. Do I care about them being graded? No. Do I care about what they're worth? No. I know that they're rare, and I want to preserve that, but it's. But it's not about it's not about the money or investment or reselling and and that's really the the grading aspect of that and and I know several of the people that were into it it really was down down to reselling it wasn't sure. about preserving anything I, I think that's the difference you just touched on because people will call me and you hypocrites they'll ask oh well do you own any sealed games I'll say yes I do but guess what I'm not selling them. And, and, and that's not the reason I bought them in the first place, and that's the main difference. And yes, there will be people out there with a bunch of graded games that are keeping them. That's not why it's a business, though. That It's not a business for those very few people that want to collect all those graded games. It's a business for people to resell them. Part of the mission statement was this increases the value of, of VGA, was this will increase the value of your games by having it graded. That was a mission statement of them. They're on, they did an interview stating that as such. Uh, and, and their headquarters, I think it's in Georgia. Um, so that's to me the main difference. Not saying you can't collect sealed games, but once you get into the graded, I think that you're on a different level where your intentions are pretty clear about what you're doing. And especially when a lot of these guys, again, that are doing this, buying and selling these games, come from the toy world. So they, they they see the opportunity and they just come on in. They couldn't tell you, well. A lot of people that get into selling games can't tell you about the games themselves, but they definitely couldn't tell you anything about the games. They couldn't tell you which one's a good game. They couldn't tell you which one is a classic. You know, they just care about okay, what's what's the grade? What's the value? And that's absolutely it. starts and ends there. John, this has been fantastic. Why don't you tell everyone about the uh, the Cowlitz for uh, Gamers for Kids event? 
Well, we've we've done a show for uh, this will be our ninth year that we're we haven't officially announced it, but we're going to be doing it uh, March thirty first. March thirty first at the Callitz Expo Center, woohoo, in Longview, Washington. Uh, last year we raised in a single video game day event fourteen thousand dollars for Ark of Callitz County, and that's part of LifeWorks, which is kind of a nationwide. Um, nonprofit, but they have a local chapter and really they support uh, kids with disabilities, Down syndrome, autism, Asperger's, and they do a lot of great services. And we've uh, all proceeds from admission. We do silent auction. We even raffled off a Nintendo Switch. And uh, it's just a local game event. It'll be March 31st of 2018 will be our next one day event. And it is sponsored by Portland Retro Gaming Expo. They they pay for the venue so that um, more proceeds can go to LifeWorks. And I'm going to be at PRGE with a little booth. Uh, if, if you come to PRGE this next year, uh, I can talk to you more about it. And we're going to have some information there about it. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my big kind of my big charity event that I do per year. And then uh, and then you can find me on uh, the Immortal John Hancock. I have my own YouTube channel. Just look it up, and uh, you'll see my 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 happy face greeting you, talking about some oddball stuff. <laughs> and by the way, the, the website is callitzgamers.com. So it's L-I-T-Z gamers.com for that information. And John Hancock, you're on Twitter as well? Yeah, on Twitter as well. Um, and, uh, again, it's pretty easy to find. It's S-W-L-O-V-I-N-I-S-T, you know, because I, I created it before thinking anybody would care. <laughs> all right i'll make sure I, I put it in the description so people can find you john this is fantastic uh we got to have more of these talks absolutely i'd be i'd be up for it i always look at it as you are the less abrasive version of myself uh <laughs> in terms of the collecting world all depends on when you talk to me before coffee <laughs> i can get pretty crabby we have a lot of similar we have a, a lot of similar thoughts about the collecting scene but i i think people uh, people like to target me because uh, I, I sometimes I, I have a little bit less less subtle uh, less subtle delivery about my thoughts than you do on some of this stuff about grading games and and uh, people that get into it for the wrong reasons for etc. But no, great talking to you, and I'll definitely see you at Portland. It'll be my wow, this is my seventh one or eighth one. It's always good seeing you there, John. Thanks for thanks for uh, being on board this uh, not so common podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to John for speaking to me on this Not-So-Common Podcast. Check him out on YouTube and on Twitter at S-W-L-O-V-I-N-I-S-T. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast and leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media to let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me and the Not-So-Common Podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.